Most people understand that corporations have a lot of power, too much power over all of our lives, that often private business interests can subvert democracy and the kinds of governments enacting the kinds of policies that people want. But that can often be a vague feeling, a suspicion. Our guest today has some meat to put on the bones, however. Matt Kennard has been a journalist in this field for more than a decade, looking at how private business often supersedes and undermines the will of peoples around the world. Matt Kennard, welcome to Downstream. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. We're very happy to have you back on Navarre after many years, and we've got you back on to talk about your new book, newish book, Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. That's obviously the theme of a lot of the, the questions I'm going to ask today, really. What's happened to democracy and what's the role of the private sector? Before we go any further, tell our audience, our viewers, our listeners a little bit about yourself. Why are you an authority on the silent coup? Good question, because my day job is working for Declassified UK, and we focus on uh, British foreign policy. So this is a bit of a departure from that. But essentially, um, in 2014, I started as a fellow at the Centre for Investigative Journalism in London. Um, and at the same time, an another journalist called Claire Provost, who's the co-author of the book, she started as a fellow as well. And she'd left The Guardian uh, to take the fellowship. I'd recently left The Financial Times. And we started talking because we had two years. The, the, the contract was two years. Um, and the guy who gave it to us said, you don't have to report to me. You do what you want. Uh, and you've got a travel budget as well. So we started thinking big. We thought, what are the biggest issues of the day in the world? Claire had been covering aid in uh, at The Guardian. I'd been covering sort of the World Bank and other places in, in Washington when I was with the FT. And we just, it was kind of a meeting of minds. And we both kind of agreed that this is the biggest issue of the day, in my opinion, um, and hers. And I think if you read the book, it's quite a persuasive argument that it should be everyone's uh, opinion because what you've seen over the last, particularly since the Second World War, but this is a battle that's been raging since for 400 years because that's when the first joint stock, modern joint stock company was invented in England, actually. Um, and what you've seen is corporations have just gradually been trying to get as much power as they can from the state. Originally, corporations were chartered uh, by the crown. So it was a privilege to create a corporation. It wasn't a right. Then there was a civil rights battle, particularly waged, particularly in the 19th century, where lots of legislation came into place that unleashed the corporation from the state in the UK, then later the, the US. Um, and then after the Second World War, this really went international. That was the age of the multinational, pretty much in the context of the Bretton Woods institutions, which were created in 1944. Um, and that was the IMF and the World Bank principally, but also later on the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, GATT, which became particularly important in uh, sort of greasing the entry of... Which is now the WTO. Exactly. In 1995, it became the WTO. It originally was going to be a WTO, but it took a long time. GATT, the, the formation of GATT was, was a kind of stopgap, and what it became was just rounds of talks. So you had like a Kennedy round in the 60s where all countries got together and tried to reduce tariffs mutually. Uh, it wasn't that successful. It was Certain rounds were successful. The Uruguay round led to the WTO in the 90s. But anyway, so that whole architecture allowed corporations to really go international. And the other part of this story, which is really apposite to the thesis, and I think understanding where we are today, is that after the Second World War, formal empires were collapsing at quite a quick clip, uh, particularly in the 50s and 60s. And the people who had been in power for centuries, the imperial powers and their financial sectors were scared. They were thinking, how are we going to maintain our control of the world 
where we don't have a formal empire, where we can't position garrisons of troops in a foreign place that can just take out a leader if we don't like if they start nationalizing our assets or wherever it was. And there was quite a lot of conscious uh, policy making at that time to try and create. And it, and this sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, but it's all there in black and white in the archives of places like the World Bank, the IMF, and other places. So essentially, they wanted to create a supranational system whereby they could bypass rebellious peoples, bypass newly liberated countries, bypass liberation movements in the developing world. So they set about that task. Um, in the book, it opens with what is called the Investor State Dispute Settlement System. And that is the first project that we started at the Centre for Investigation. So, so that again, the Investor State Dispute Settlement System is called ISDS. Yeah. And it is... Um, that. <laughs> The conspiracy theory, theorist in me thinks that they, they give these institutions these kind of hard to say names and acron long acronyms so people just switch off. And that is the first reaction you get when you discuss these things. But then you start explaining what this is. You say, okay, well, this is a shadow legal system whereby multinational corporations can sue states for enacting policies they don't like, which infringe on their quote unquote uh, investor rights. Um, and it happens all over the world. They're enshrined, uh, this system is enshrined in free trade agreements, which are a bit of a misnomer because free trade agreement makes you think it's all about mutual lowering of tariffs. But actually in, embedded in these trade agreements are huge amounts of uh, legal mechanisms whereby corporations can enforce their will on the countries that are part of that, that agreement. One of these is the ISDS system. So NAFTA has ISDS provisions in it plenty of other free trade agreements. So when the EU makes a trade agreement with a country in Sub-Saharan Africa, it has ISDS in it. Exactly. And there's, the other part of this is what are called bilateral investment treaties or BITS. And they're all over the world they're between two countries. And they just sort of, uh, they're a regime, an investment regime that uh, both countries have to apply uh, abide by. But ISDS is enshrined in nearly all of those. So, um, and, is, and is enforced. So in the case of a corporation that wants to use a BIT, a BIT, for example, you can just um, create a shell company in a in a country that has a BIT with the country you want to sue and just and just sue them that way. That happens all the time. So there's this whole web of treaties, agreements, which enshrine this ISDS system. And what it means, effectively, away from all the acronyms, all the boring stuff, is that corporations can sue some of the poorest countries in the world for huge amounts of money, billions of dollars often. Um, for, for for enacting policies like not allowing the company an environmental permit um, to dig for gold, for example. That was one case we looked at in El Salvador. There was one case in Egypt where a French water company sued the Egyptian government for raising the minimum wage. So anything that a corporation doesn't like that a government does, they can potentially sue for. Now, you would think that that is a, a massive attack on democracy, and it is, because the, the second part of it is it's not just the cases that get to court. Now, these case, most of these cases are heard at a place called the International Center for the uh, Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, which is a part of the World Bank. Say that, say that one again, Matt, because <laughs> we're going to have lots of these. The International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID. It's an arm of the World Bank. Uh, it was created in 1966 at the height of what I'm talking about, at the height of uh, decolonization and newly independent governments. And what it is is the main venue where these cases are heard. Uh, by uh, it, it's also a kangaroo court. There's so much to get out on this stuff, but it's also a kangaroo court because it's these decisions are made by three arbitrators, one appointed by the company, one appointed by the government, and one agreed on by both. 
Uh, these arbitrators have to have no, there's no uh, threshold for uh, legal history or any kind of professional attainment. But we found that a lot of them have um, come from from US administrations. There are, plenty, there are plenty that came from the Bush administration and other, and the Clinton administration. So, uh, and, and the decision, and it's hugely secretive. A lot of the documents you can't get your hands on. Um, but to go back to my point is that it's not just the cases that are heard at ICSID and uh, and this wealth transferred to the develop uh, to the corporations that is the major issue. Regulatory chill and policy making chill is the major issue because if you have this huge infrastructure in place, this huge web of uh, economic arrangements whereby multinationals can sue you, it means that it impacts on your thinking when you're devising policies in your countries. And this is we saw this in a very specific way in places like Guatemala, for example, there was a case where we got Freedom of Information Act uh, documents from the Guatemalan government showing internal deliberations about whether they should grant a, a, a multinational mining company an environmental permit next to this community. And it was going to be uh, affecting their, um, their, their, their community and their environment. You would think when a government is um, deliberating whether to grant an environmental permit, their main priority would be what impact does this have on our people? But actually, the internal deliberations within the Guatemalan government were about, are we going to get sued by that company if we enact that policy? They eventually gave them the environmental permit. And that happens all over the world, this chill, this policy-making chill. And it's by design. Corporations want to have an insurance mechanism where they can get their profits and get their, their, uh, the policies they want in place above the heads of national governments. You also use the example of South Africa, yeah. which is incredible. So you have, obviously, post-apartheid South Africa, uh, uh, we've transitioned to democracy, and in the mid-1990s, they're saying that in companies which have mining rights in the country, obviously, it's been a phenomenal producer of gold, diamonds, et cetera, over the years, South Africa. They're saying 26% of kind of management or ownership needs to be in the hands of black South Africans. And this is pushed back by Italian investors. And so I think there's this incredible moment where we're told in the West that, oh, now South Africa is has transitioned to democratic government, but in fact, a democratically elected government with an overwhelming mandate, which is what the ANC has in the 1990s. I mean, it's basically a one-party state, still is to an extent, but with democratic legitimacy, they can't do what they want because of this regulatory chill you talk about. Can you talk about the, the example of South Africa a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this was the craziest um, case we looked at because we went to South Africa to report on the ground from what would, uh, on, what, on what had happened in that case. And essentially, it's like you say, after apartheid, black empowerment policies were brought in to um, uh, make just the historical injustices of apartheid. One of them was to, that all companies had to give a percentage of their company to historically disadvantaged people, so black people. Now, this Italian company didn't like that, and they said, we're going to take you to ICSID. And essentially, the whole case was kept really quiet by the South African government because they didn't want to... Um, uh, incentivize other companies to do it. So it was really under the radar. Not many people in South Africa knew about this case. And what happened was uh, there was a settlement out of court where the, gov the government just wanted to keep it quiet. So they said, okay, well, you don't have to abide by this regulation. So this Italian company didn't have to do it. But afterwards, uh, the South African government tried to escape from this system completely. And that in itself was interesting because a lot of what these systems uh, are about is um, locking countries into these uh, these systems and allowing no way out. So one of the interesting parts of the bilateral investment treaties 
is that they have things called, or they often have things called sunset clauses, where even if you cancel them, you can't, that, that doesn't come in for 10 years, by which time these, these people are hoping there'll be a different government that mm. doesn't have the same um, uh, uh, predilection to get, to get out. It's interesting, it's what, what Thomas Friedman called, the, he called it the golden straitjacket, but it's obviously not golden. But, um, but the South Africans were trying, uh, interestingly in, La in Latin America, the liberation governments of Correa, uh, Maduro, um, sorry, Chavez in Venezuela and Evo Morales, they all tried to leave as well during the sort of first pink tide in the 2000s. Um, and they found it very difficult as well. Um, and in fact, I went to interview Evo Morales at his house in Bolivia last year. And he was talking about uh, this system because he nationalized a lot of companies, one of which was a British um, power company called Ruralec. And Ruralec took Bolivia to uh, one of these tribunals at this one was actually at the Hague and won uh, uh, tens of millions of uh, pounds from the Bolivian government. So it's all over the world. Uh, it's enshrined in these bilateral investment treaties. In the case of South Africa, another interesting part of it is we were talking to people that had been in the government at that time, post-apartheid, and they'd said that actually these bilateral investment treaties were just presented as a bit of diplomatic goodwill. So Mandela would go to Belgium. And they'd say, okay, welcome back into the fold. You're being reintegrated into, into the global economy. Let's just sign this nice bit of paper. This is what happened. And then 10, 15 years later, they're getting hit with all these suits that they didn't even know were, were, were it was possible to activate through these agreements. And that's often how, it, how it's done. It's a hugely secretive uh, and um, uh, uh, quietly done system, which is why people like you who know, you know about economics, you know about these things, a lot of the people... Uh, who I explain this to, they're sort of like, why do I not know about this? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's by design. They don't want people to talk about it. But if you talk to governments that are trying to go against corporate rule within their own countries, but also, also internationally, they all know about it. Um, um, yeah, so that, that's why Evo Morales was talking about it when, we, when I was asking about corporate power, because for him, it was an extremely... Um, powerful way that corporations could override his decisions. There are enforcement mechanisms that it's not like you can just say, okay, we're, we're not going to listen to you. If, if, if arbitration, if they call, if you're called to an arbitration, you don't recognize it, they can start taking your assets internationally. They can, uh, there's a lot of uh, ways of enforcing this system on developing countries. So it's not like somewhere, uh, it's not like domestically where you could just used to be able to nationalize something and then you could or you should pay compensation, but you, that would be negotiated. This is like, this international court will decide and you have to pay, otherwise we'll start stripping you. So what, What? I mean, you sort of, you alluded to it there, but what would happen if they didn't pay? So let's say Bolivia takes a mining company owned by the US away from them. The court says, no, you need to, uh, and they're taking the public ownership and the court said, this is quite a reasonable one, right? Rather than the, the case of the Italians in South Africa, which is completely unacceptable, I think. Um, they say, no, you have to give it back to them. And they say, no, they fine them a couple of hundred million dollars. But they say, well, we don't recognize this court or this fine. What happens then? Well, there's, there's, they, they, there's actual legal systems in place where they can, um, they can take your assets internationally. So if you have um, any kind of um, government assets in foreign countries, they can be taken. If you have boats in international waters, they can be taken. It becomes a legal matter, but also you can be massively punished by the Bretton Woods institutions themselves because ICSID is part of um, the World Bank, but also so the IMF. They can, they can 
do really punitive things that mean that you basically can't function. Your your credit lines will be pulled. You won't be able to get liquidity if you need it in a, in a time of crisis. All these all these things that make someone like Evan Morales, who you, who who you would not expect to abide by a system that he doesn't think is just, he abided by it, and they did pay it. Um, there were negotiations. They the the, the company Ruralek didn't get the fee that they uh, that they wanted, but but they got millions. Um, and interestingly. For while we were working on this, I actually sent a Freedom of Information Act request to the British government to about the Royal Elect case to get emails between the embassy and, and London during this case. And it showed that the the um the embassy in Bolivia were lobbying on behalf of Ruralek, which actually is is unlawful because governments are not meant to be involved in these in these uh, investor state dispute settlement systems. And there was one there was one email that was headlined lobby on Ruralek. That was a British embassy email. Um, like all these things, nothing ever happened because they just ignored our article. Well, so say this again. The British embassy... Yeah, in Bolivia. ...was lobbying on the behalf of a private company. Yeah, in, who was in a dispute with the Bolivian government. Um, it's, not, it's, 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 not, uh, I don't, it's not lawful, and it's, it, the ICSID's uh, system and the investor state dispute settlement system is meant to be outside of state um, uh, control and outside of state influence. But in this case, it wasn't. Um, and it was extremely obvious. I mean, it was interesting that they released that email to me because I think they probably just didn't know that they weren't allowed to lobby because mm. a lot of their part of their job is to lobby for business. That's well, what most, embassies mo- do. Most journalists don't cover this stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they probably, A, they don't even know if it's legal or not. And even if it is illegal, who the hell's going to talk about it? Exactly, yeah. If it's not Matt Kennard or somebody at Navarra Media yeah. or, you know. I mean, can I just say one more really messed up part of this which is for me is kind of maybe the most messed up part is that there's been a whole industry now created around this investor state dispute settlement system called third party financing which is whereby there are boutique financial firms now which their sole purpose is to lend money to um corporations who are suing states and those those claims against states are the collateral that they give the the loan to and they say we'll give you millions um, to, uh, to 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 pay for the legal fees or whatever it is. Actually, it's not only just to pay for the cost of the case; it's to say, you, to expand. In the case of Ruralek, they were they were funded by a third party financer, and the third party financer said we we will help Ruralek expand. But what they what the deal is that if they if they if they win the case against the state, these companies these uh, financial companies get a cut of that award. And we're talking about sometimes billions. As I said, Occidental Petroleum, a case against Exodor, which was quite famous. They got billions of dollars. Um, there's a case now against Honduras, um, uh, which uh, whereby uh, they they denied uh, a company um, uh, the the right to build a special economic zone in Honduras, and they're getting sued for eleven billion dollars. Honduras, tiny little country in Central America. They're being sued because they won't build a special yeah. economic zone. Yeah, by the company. I think I don't know the specifics, but I think they'd probably come to some. Agreement or they're, they're, they're eleven billion dollars. Yeah, and, but the other point of this is, you said that okay, maybe uh, the rural case. There's a case for getting compensation. Okay, that's true. But part of capitalism is rests on the fact that you take a risk when you invest, right? Of course. Uh, and the higher the risk, the bigger the return. So if you go to Congo and you you get you want to get a diamond mine or whatever it is, then you might get you might get expropriated. But that's what part that's why you go there because you the the potential for huge rewards this insures you against that it's a massive insurance mechanism whereby corporations de-risk the whole of capitalism and it's totally against the capitalist model and the funny thing about the isds system is 
you know, when you talk to people on the inside about all these different uh, systems that, that, that benefit corporate power around the world, most of them have quite a sophisticated and persuasive ideology built up on top of them to justify them to the general public, but also to the people working in, within them. In this case of the ISDS system, there's barely anything. Like even talking to people, people say, the one thing they say is, this is about increasing investment to the developing world because corporations are going to be much less scared to go and invest in the developing world if they can be sure that they'll get compensated if bad things happen to them. But that doesn't make, that just doesn't hold up because Brazil is one country which has never, which never signed up to ICSID and has never been hit with one of these uh, cases. Um, because it doesn't include them in, it, in their different agreements. Has Brazil ever had a problem with foreign direct investment? I don't think so. There's no uh, corollary. corollary. Um, so um, yeah, it's a naked attempt to ensure companies against risk and a naked attempt to allow corporations to go over the heads of national governments. And it's not a coincidence that it was created in 1966 because that was the 60s was really the time when large parts of Africa, Asia were really becoming free of the imperial powers. Uh, and the winds of change, as, exactly. as uh, Wilson said. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and they, were, they, they thought, well, we, we, we can't have that. We've got to create a system whereby we can maintain that imperial control and maintain the control of the investors, maintain the control of the corporations without having to have formal garrisons of troops or whatever it is in those countries. And they did it. It's successful. 2023, it has taken off, it's, it's gone wild because what we saw, we sort of did analysis of how many cases there had been since it was created in 1966. And it picked up massively after the end of the Cold War because uh, it was resurgent, rampant capitalism. There was no uh, other pole for countries to organize around. So they had to be integrated into the system. They had, there was nowhere else they could go. Um, and Eastern Europe, um, the ISDS was a massive part of all the agreements that they that they signed. So, I mean, part of the rest of the the, the rest of the book is also about this system of uh, that is the countries that come out of the cold are integrated into. But this is a major part of it. You, you said about Honduras a moment ago, so I had to check Honduras's GDP. Its GDP is twenty nine billion dollars. So eleven billion dollars is quite a lot. You think you know the UK GDP is about oh, three trillion. You know. Uh, Two point eight trillion dollars. Yeah, so you're looking at almost half of their their economic output in a year. What you're describing with these um, with these agreements is, like you say, just a clarification on my part. There's an insulation from any downside whatsoever, and like you say, normally there is risk with capital. If you go and invest in an ISA or a pension, you will be told quite explicitly, you're not guaranteed a return here. You may even lose your initial investment. But what we have here is basically the equivalent of you can go and open a shop on the high street and even if nobody turns up, even if you don't sell anything, you can't lose money. Don't worry. And, and that, isn't, that isn't what capitalism is meant to be. And I'm not defending capitalism or attacking capitalism, but that's merely a description of this system here. What you're describing really is a, is a complete, and that obviously this thread runs throughout the book, is really a complete subversion of democracy. And it is interesting for me in this country, people have talked about taking back control. And it seems very obvious that for much of the global south, and it should be said, a lot of the global north too, I mean, you just mentioned Eastern Europe, but other places as well, um, as we'll go on to discuss, democracy is a mirage. It doesn't exist with this stuff. And often you, you, you would have heard over the last couple of decades, particularly since early 2000s with the protests against WTO and so on, we have neo-colonialism. But it sounds to me you're just describing colonialism. 
So what is it? Is it neo-colonialism? It doesn't sound like there's anything particularly neo about it. Yeah, well, there, there's this whole um, school of thought uh, uh, called post-colonialism. I just don't, I don't see it. I, I think that it's the same dynamics, but altered for a new reality. So they had to um, abide by the, the newly independent and uh, uh, peoples and the new liberation movements which, which took off after the Second World War. They, they would have liked not to do that, but they had to uh, adjust for a new reality. And they did. And they did it undercover. I mean, no one knows about this ISDS system. No one knows about the reality of aid, which is another major strand. We'll talk about that. Yeah, hold, yeah. Your, hold your fire there. No one, but, but, but literally the left and the right, and the left's maybe worse than the right in terms of misunderstanding what aid is, but that, that they, they, they not only adjusted, they repackaged it as saying, we're helping the developing world and we're helping you to develop. Um, and, and, and you see that across the board. And, and what's quite interesting is obviously when you look at the archives, which we did, and you look at the internal deliberations, it's the opposite. They're talking quite consciously about enshrining and maintaining their control. It's just that the public posture was about uh, uh, um, all these wonderful things that we wanted to, to give people. And that was, and this is a major, another part of this corporate coup is that it is huge part of it is, is about um, uh, uh, what, the, what is called corporate social responsibility, which is propaganda, corporate propaganda. It's about presenting this corporate system uh, and this corporate colonialism as uh, a wonderful benefit for the rest of humanity. Now, like, I, I covered the mining industry at the Financial Times for, for a year. And it was amazing. It's, I went to one of the mining conferences in, in South Africa, and there were all these presentations by mining companies. And it was, I, you'd barely know that these mining companies were digging for, for gold or anything. Nearly 90% of what they talked about was all the wonderful things that they were bringing to the local communities. It would just be slides of schools and hospitals and all this stuff. It was, it, and I, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. It was literally like I was just in like a Oxfam International conference or something. But that is that was a really, really conscious decision by the corporate sector, particularly in mining in the 90s, because they were having trouble with what they called a social license. They were, it was operations on the ground were becoming more and more difficult because their reputation was so bad and people didn't wanted to kick them out. So they thought we're going to have to get that social license back. So they launched this huge corporate social responsibility thing. But that's almost, that's also what happened after the Second World War with development, the word development, they said that they started saying, well, we want the world to develop. We want you, poor people have to develop. Um, and it has to be, a. Uh, but, but what, what does development mean? It's export orientated growth. It has to be that you, you don't exist for these institutions if you're a subsistence farmer and you've been doing it for a thousand years, it doesn't matter. What You only exist if you are producing produce for the market. So they re reorientated all these economies in the name of development to benefit to benefit the, the global market and to benefit to benefit these um, these companies and th this system, but um, yeah, it's a it's a massive uh, uh, it's a massive illusion that, that uh, post colonialism ever happened. It, we, we live in the midst of it. So I think lots of people instinctively will they won't know all these facts and details, and they'll go, "Wow, that's really interesting." But they say so that kind of t tallies with what I I suspected. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of this because you say. A lot of this happens in the crucible of the sort of the end of colonialism 1.0. Obviously, the British Empire really is collapsing in the 50s and 60s. I mean, really after the, the mid-1950s. Um, and it's around this time we hear about a guy called Hermann Josef Abs, a German banker. Can you explain who he is and why he's important? I, I don't know now in Germany, but at the time he was a very prominent figure in Germany. 
Um, and in, in 1957, he went to um, a, a conference of industrialists in San Francisco and presented a proposal for what I'm talking about, what I talked about, which is this investor state dispute settlement system. It wasn't called that then, but what he said was, we need to ensure that <laughs> essentially, this sounds over the top, but essentially people don't have control of their own resources because it's a problem for us. And he referenced things like the, the coup uh, in Iran in uh, 1953 the following year which was done by mi6 and cia because the democratic president uh, prime minister had nationalized the anglo-iranian oil company just for our audience is a man called mossadegh mossadegh yeah. yeah and he was taken out in a joint cia uh, mi6 coup iran's never been a democracy again um he was a moderate i mean that it was it was part of this cold war thing of trying he's to... probably center right actually yeah. you know like yeah but he was called national front but the red line for these people was you can't you can't have use your resources for your own people. He yeah. wanted to give a little, a higher percentage to uh, the Iranian state, uh, therefore the Iranian people, uh, at, the, at the detriment uh, to the detriment of the British um, investors. Not allowed. Following year, CIA takes out the social democratic president of Guatemala in 1954 um, be, uh, at the behest of the United Fruit Company, because again, Arbenz. Uh, the president had had the temerity to say that maybe we could uh, distribute a little bit of fallow land back to some peasants. No, not allowed. We'll take you out. Suez crisis, 1956. Uh, NASA nationalizes the Suez Canal. England, uh, UK, France, Israel invade. Um, again, so he's referencing all these things. He's saying, look, we don't want to have to have a system where we have to go in hard like this. Um, we need a system that works above these people's heads so it doesn't matter if these people get in power. They have no power anyway. Investor, the, the investor state dispute settlement system is a major part of that. But an, another part of it is, uh, um, we could move on to this, is, is, is aid um, and creating um, global economies that, are, that, that rely and are based around attracting investment. Well, I just want to stick with Herman Yosef Abs for a second because... This is the world that we live in, right? We think of it as 21st century capitalism and so on. But Josef Abs is working for Deutsche Bank in the late 1930s, right? Under the Third Reich. And that, that is the world that we still live in. Very much colonial powers, the idea of white supremacy, European hegemony, markets and us making profits here in Europe and North America matter far more than people in Africa and South America and Asia. And I think it's really important to name names. I mean, you've got him... There's a few others too, and I suppose we'll we'll, um, we'll turn to those. But it's it's still very much their world, and this idea of you write about a a Magna Carta moment for global capitalism, inherently tied to ideas of pre-war colonialism. Like there's just a, such a clear continuation. Let's talk about aid because that is something that our audience probably thinks, okay, it's got some downsides, but it's generally good. Why are you not such a fan of overseas development aid? We'll put it like this, okay? This is what I always say to people because I think that there's no topic that the left gets more wrong than aid. Um, David Cameron, not known as a great um, uh, advocate for the poor, is he? Uh, in 2010, the austerity government that he that began then with George, George Osborne was what created one of the worst crises for the British poor for, for generations. Um, at the same time, he went on TV and was talking up how he was dedicating 0.7% of GDP to aid. Now, how do you square those two things? Why does he? Why is he hammering the poor here to the point where, I don't know, what the, I can't remember what the stat is, I think it's a quarter of a million people that they, or 100,000 people that 
might have died because of austerity. We think at least 150,000, right? At least yeah. 150,000. Excess deaths. Yeah, excess deaths. But yet, he's, while he's doing that and enacting those policies, he's, he's promising that we'll give, uh, maintain a certain level of GDP uh, towards aid for foreigners. It's not because he, he, he cares about the poor in the developing world. It's because aid is a massive subsidy to his friends in the corporate sector and is a massive tool for geopolitical control as well. That's the other thing, because a lot of the work I do with Declassified actually is about aid programs. Uh, so for example, I've done, um, did one recently about how uh, a, a British aid had been used to set up an anti-government uh, coalition in Venezuela, or about how aid had been used to uh, try to persuade Bolsonaro's Brazil to privatize oil and gas. Or uh, it's just that there's one uh, organization particularly called the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, which I'd say tell people to look into. Again, a, another acronym and another long name that sounds boring. But again, it's just a massive slush fund uh, for, for the state to, to enact its geopolitical control. But that's one element of it. The other element of it, element of it is the um, uh, subsidy to corporate corporations. And you see this all across the board. There's one institution which we focus on particularly, which is emblematic of this system, aid system, which is the International Finance Corporation. Again, another arm of the World Bank, again created in this in the context of these newly independent countries in 1956, uh, in this case. Uh, and uh, it, the idea was um, to invest in private companies. So the World Bank before had been, it was about transfer of capital to uh, governments. And this was about how uh, in the name of development and the stated goal of uh, uh, alleviating global poverty, they would invest in private corporations. The argument being that uh, they'd invest in corporations that would otherwise not want to go to certain places. Um, I, but I spent years looking at the IFC eventually and went to countless countries and it's an absolute uh, joke, racket. Um, from uh, Myanmar, uh, also known as Burma, we went we went there to report on the IFC. I'll just give you this one example. And the IFC had invested, uh, this is a, a one of the poorest countries I've ever been to, dirt poor, I think the fewest doctors per person in the world maybe. And they'd, inv they'd, they'd poured capital into this five-star hotel um, uh, built by this Malaysian oligarch. And you sort of, so you went from the street, we went to the hotel. Just poor people everywhere, pe uh, 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 real sort of destitution. And then you'd walk through these doors and it's just this air-conditioned, beautiful uh, hotel with like huge uh, a buffet, um, all these men and women in uh, well, all these men in suits. And it, and that is, that it, that was copied around the world. Wherever I went, I went to a diamond mine in, in Tanzania. Um, There's lots of good stories here, so slow down. Yeah. The, the one that really caught my, my imagination was that we, the British taxpayer, were paying for gated communities, which I just found so mad. We're, we're paying for social and economic apartheid in, in, in the third world or developing countries in the name of development. And I, I found myself, this is the thing, Max, you said the left is quite bad on this. I read that. I read a few other things too. So we're talking about separate things here. The World Bank and what it does, let's put a pin in that for a moment, and what you know, the British government does with its own overseas aid. I read that thing about the British overseas aid, and I felt my inner Farage come out, you know, just scrap international aid. Mm. And I think if, if you tell most people that, oh, international aid is just a, it's a scam, mm. to a significant extent, not all of it, mm. they sort of look at you rather strangely. But the reality is, of course, we should be spending money on 
reproductive rights, contraception, clean drinking water, education programs. Of course, of course, but that's not the majority of aid, is it? No. And like you say, there is a segment of it. And I know people in the aid industry and there's really good people that work in it. Yeah. And the bit that is really important is disaster relief. So, for example, when I worked for the Financial Times, they sent me to Haiti after the earthquake. And organisations like Oxfam, and, and which is funded by the UK government, and, and, and lots of other groups were doing vital work to keep people alive. You know, this is like a, it was an apocalypse there. Um, but that's actually quite a small se- section of it. And the real money is going towards subsidising um, corporations in, and, and it's a massive asset, uh, 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 revenue stream for them. Uh, so much money is being pumped into it and barely anyone is covering it. The other, the other part of this as well is that I mentioned Oxfam. I should talk a bit about how corporations have colonized civil society as well, particularly in aid. One example, which was pretty shocking for me at the time, I'm not shocked by this kind of stuff now, but we went to El Salvador in 2000, I can't remember, 2016, I think it was, and we, we did a story about this poor community that lived on top of an aquifer um, and they couldn't afford the water that they were sitting on uh, because the, the prices were too high. But yet down the road, there were all these multinationals bottling uh, uh, drinks like Coke and Fanta that we drink here. So we did this story for, uh, for, the, uh, for the Guardian. Um, so I contacted Sab Miller, which is one of the companies that bottles Coke and said, look, we, we, we've talked to all these poor people they're, they're really struggling and, and, you're getting all, and you're bottling these drinks down the road. They said, they said, they got really angry at me, uh, one of the most aggressive PR teams I've ever dealt with. And then they said, look, read this report that we, that we authored with Oxfam. So I sort of thought, okay. And then they sent me this report, which had the Sab Miller and Oxfam's logo on the same thing, which was basically exculpating them of any, any problems, uh, any crimes in, in, in that area. I kind of put up some resistance to it, but I think most journalists receiving that would see the sort of logo of Oxfam and think, okay, well, if Oxfam are saying they're all right, then then they are all right. But that's but that happens all the time. So why why is Oxfam saying that? What what Oxfam? Because most people in Oxfam don't enter that game to um, provide a cloak fundamentally yeah. for multinationals destroying people's lives in the in the global south. So how has that happened? Well, because of the budget problems, uh, and also it's just a it's a function of the same dynamic that we've been talking about. Co- corporations have infested every part of our society. There's basically zero parts of our society that have escaped corporate power because they have all the money and they've used these corporations to uh, uh, to uh, sort of a version of greenwashing obviously it's not it's not about the environment although that also exists but um with aid organizations and humanitarian organizations it gives them the perfect foil to do whatever they want uh, and in the case of Oxford it gets worse this story by the way so we we published the story eventually um and it's quite a hard hitting story goes on for the Guardian, so obviously goes under the Gates Foundation logo. So then you see that that happens. And the Gates Foundation is not a benign institution, it's part of this whole system. It's, a, it's got a very particular way of looking at development, which is in it's line the, with it's corporate. The God, it's the godfather of this whole exactly. system. It's, like, it's the Don Corleone exactly. of this whole exactly. system. But, um, uh, and, then, so, and then two days after that, there's an there's a article in the Guardian uh, on the development site with the Bill Gates logo, which is a 900-word interview um, with the Latin America division head of Sab Miller. Wow! Basically, talking about our article, not by na- not naming it, but, but defending Sab Miller's record in El Salvador. Oh, well, yeah. Well, saying that water stress is what these corporations also, also always do. They say it's about corruption. You know, all these sort of words yeah. that they use to blame the victim rather than them. And then one more thing. 
And so then I see, then I start doing a bit of research and I see that Sab Miller funds part of the Guardian's website. So they, so I, I don't, I don't know if Sab Miller called up and said, we fund part of your website, but, but so we want to, we want to write a reply. But well, so that was my question. Do you think because obviously there is a right, there's there's a right to a, editorial right to giving somebody the right to reply. You should do that if they've made your misgivings. It wasn't presented like that. But you don't this think was it was, just, okay. no, no, it was presented as just it happened to be. They happened to publish this interview. It wasn't even so. It wasn't an advertorial. It wasn't a right of reply. It was just a we'll interview this person about water stress in Latin America. It happened to be two days after we published this article. So so they've infested the NGOs. They've infested. The, the the media because obviously the, the progressive press the progressive this isn't press the times it's or, often worse like yeah. uh, in terms of I don't know if you've seen recently I saw some um, Navarra journalists tweeting about the new statesman uh, and BAE systems yes they, there's a whole section but it in some ways the Guardian and the and the new statesman are worse than the right wing media in terms of uh, uh, doing this uh, doing the bidding of corporations but um, yeah, so it, it, it's it's a panorama where they've just taken over. It's very, very few spaces now where you can give an opinion independent of corporate power, whether that be in the media, um, universities, whatever it is. But hold on, it's not an opinion even. You were reporting facts. Right, that's true. You're reporting facts. And if you report facts, all of a sudden Saab Miller can place an interview within 48 hours. I mean, that's mad. I know. And also, if you think about that, what that means in reality, that is The Guardian has given the last word to one of the richest corporations in the world who are doing awful things there over the voices of some of the poorest people in the world that we'd originally platformed. And that was how it ended. Um, and this happens all the time. The point is, I wasn't working for The Guardian then. And also, I didn't really care about pissing them off uh, by publicizing it. So I did publicize it at the time. But I think most people just would, it, they wouldn't even- uh, Of course. Uh, they wouldn't even look at it or they wouldn't even realize it had happened. They wouldn't do the research to see all these different pressure points which had been activated. Or if you did bring it up, Matt, fr frankly, it's career suicide. Exactly. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. Th there's a reason why, might sound like it's cope from me, but there's a reason why people like you and me don't really appear on the BBC. Definitely. Or Sky, generally. Yeah. I mean, I, got, I only get a call from BBC or Sky so they can attack me for something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or I've got to just defend somebody. Yeah. But they don't say, what's your view on X, Y, Z? And, and, and there's a reason for that because when you're honest about this stuff, it's 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 not really good for, you know, getting you up the, the greasy pole. You're saying about the media, do you think it's got worse with this stuff? Because I remember The Guardian, I don't want to stick on The Guardian too much, but it's really yeah. interesting because it, you know, we don't have many progressive print publications in this country. It's one of them. And it feels to me like 15, 20 years ago, it was substantially better on this stuff. And now it's a lot worse. Do you think that's right? I think it is across the board. It's not just corporations. It's also its um, coverage of the, the the security state, for example, which is what I cover day to day. That's just been completely jettisoned. Any kind of critical coverage of the military or intelligence agencies, it doubles up with the corporate corporations. But I think that you've seen uh, these interests really ramp up their attacks on independent spaces. So The Guardian, as you say, actually 20 years ago was actually not bad. Like it wasn't perfect, far from it, but it had space for maverick reporters, people doing truthful independent reporting yeah. regularly. Yeah. And that's been completely lost. And I think that part of it is that a lot, so for, in terms of the corporations, for example, when they signed, I, I remember when it was sort of the advent of this um, corporate uh, takeover of The Guardian, the Guardian would always say when they started doing these sites in, in, in alliance with the corporations, well, we sign contracts where the corporations say they have no say over our uh, editorial line. Or, and, and I think that's probably true. But that's the, that, that's the direct relationship. When you've, but then 
20 years later when you've got like dozens of companies just all over, just with their logo all over your website, it has a, it has an effect on a sort of more general level. It's not, and it's not conscious. It's not like they're saying, do this, do that. It's just because you know, those logos are there. You know, you work within a new framework. So that, that, that power is felt in a much more insidious way. And I think that's how it's worked. I think that's also how it worked with the security state as well, because I mean, actually, in the case of the security state with the gun, it's quite interesting. Like in the, in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations, we looked at the D-Notice Committee meetings, which for viewers, the D-Notice Committee is this uh, media censorship organization uh, run uh, by the Ministry of Defense. And they meet every six months at the MOD with a small collection of journalists and basically discuss about what they can and can't publish. The Guardian, which, and very, which is very British because it's self-censorship, right? It's the yeah. media saying, yeah, we'll censor ourselves. Well, it, it's not like, you know, Stalin, where it's like, you can't write. Exactly. And America, I've talked to some American journalists about it. They just think, I mean, American journalism is far from perfect, but they literally can't understand how we put up with that. They say, you meet with the state and, and, and in this formal way. Like, people do it, but behind closed doors, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. But um, anyway, so the, those D-Notice Committee meetings showed that during the Snowden revelations, they were the intelligence uh, apparatus uh, uh, and the MOD were freaking out big time because they were ignoring the notices which were being sent out, the Guardian were. And then they, uh, to cut a long story short, Russ Bridger, who was the editor at the time, agreed to add uh, the deputy editor, Paul Johnson, to the D-Notice Committee and he joined. So that was about bringing them in-house, you know, about cultivating them. And then soon after that, the first ever interview of a sitting head of MI5 was granted to the Guardian. Soon after that, the first interview of the sitting head of MI6 was granted to the Guardian. So, so you can kind of, we we did it in the first article we did for Declassified, myself and Mark Curtis. We kind of delineated how this had happened, and I think that it's the same with corporations. Independent spaces are a real threat, especially ones with resources, because the Guardian not only had the predilection to to expose the security state and corporations, but it also had the resources. It's a big newspaper, global newspaper with a good reputation. When you've got those two things combined, it's a threat to these power interests. So they had to take them take them down. And, and, and essentially, as a critical sort of independent media outlet, it doesn't exist anymore, in my opinion. They, they, it, they, they barely do stories that, that, uh, that are on the, of the caliber that they used to do at all. Um, and it's kind of just become a bit of a tabloidy, um, uninteresting uh, newspaper, in my opinion. There's also a broader point here, let's just stick with the media for a moment, about how... For most of the last century, broadly anybody with capital, obviously it tends to be wealthier people, but it, it could be a trade union as well, right? Um, or the Scott Trust in the case of The Guardian. If you have lots of money, you can start a newspaper and it can wash its own face through selling copies of that newspaper if it can find a market. The market mechanism would pay for news. Clearly in the last couple of decades, that stopped because of the internet. Um, now, it still applies to some things, monthly publications or weekly papers or whatever. New York Times is doing great with its 10 million uh, online subscribers, but generally speaking, the idea of a daily newspaper with the market mechanism has kind of disappeared. And what that means now is that news outlets are generally owned by the ultra-rich, whether that's Bezos with the Washington Post. You know, would they have done Watergate with Bezos in charge, right? Or The Observer in the 1980s um, showing that actually the BBC, going back for decades, had been vetting thousands of people to see their, to see their political connections fundamentally. If you were going to be, going to be anybody in the BBC right the way from its beginning, right the way through to the late 1980s, probably still what we don't know, you were basically vetted. And if you were, you know, if you had strong left-wing connections, 
No, you wouldn't get senior jobs. That was that was um, that was uh, exposed by the Observer. You have the story about the Israeli nuclear weapons program. Okay, the, the paper was owned by Murdoch, but the point was that the, these papers were trying to sell news. They were trying to make money, and I think we're in a world now where I I don't think legacy journalism does that anymore. I genuinely think we're now in a moment where legacy journalism does basically basically does PR. I agree. And we're in a really new world. But don't you think it's very strange that that dynamic has has taken place at the same time as the media has opened up and democratized? You would have thought the opposite pressure would be. So the fact that Navarro exists or declassified, we couldn't have existed 20 years ago. Um, but at, so the, the media has been massively democratized by the internet, by social media. So you would have thought that the pressure that would put on the legacy media was that they had to open up because otherwise they're going to get outflanked. But actually, they've become more and more closed and more and more establishment friendly while uh, uh, alternative media, what's called alternative media, has blossomed. Uh, I can't get my head around why that is, but I totally agree with you. I think that the, the mainstream media is something very uh, uh, insidious and sinister has happened to it in the last 20 years. Because even if you remember during the war in Iraq, like what the media was like, the, uh, the, the mirror under Piers Morgan, uh, uh, who... He's a controversial figure, but he it was incredible. I remember that there were, I bought it every day during that build up to it, the war in Iraq, where he had, he, the headlines were made out of oil companies' logos. There were pictures of George Bush and Tony Blair with blood all over their hands, stuff you would never, ever see now. No. Um, I actually think that there was a concerted effort by the state to make sure that never happened again because it was a, the, the media um, opposition and the mainstream media opposition to Iraq was a real problem for them executing that war. Um, and probably stopped uh, any movement onto Iran. Or I was going to say, the subsequent, people say, oh, well, the war happened anyway. Well, yeah, but we never went to Iran. In, nine, uh, in, in Under Miliband, Labour refused to bomb Syria, etc. Exactly. You can agree or disagree with those decisions, but the point is, they didn't happen, and I think the trajectory was diverted because of, like you say, media intervention, I think hostility from the public, yeah. which to an extent was reflected in the media, and now it isn't. And it is weird now, we're in the early 2020s, all the media talks about, and I know some of our viewers and our listeners care about this stuff, it talks about cake. It talks about speeding fines. Like, and of course that stuff matters. Of course it matters. It doesn't matter half as much as the stories you're talking about. And they're not being relayed in, in legacy media for a reason. So let's put a pin in the media conversation because we could talk about that all day. People who are listening, watching, probably remember about 20 minutes ago, I, was, I, I mentioned the fact that the... You know, the British Overseas Development Aid Budget was investing in gated communities, I believe in El Salvador. I mean, this really underscores an important point, doesn't it? That, you know, we had NGOs, people like The Guardian, quote-unquote progressive, saying we have to spend 0.7% of GDP on overseas aid, but it's about what you're spending, where, and who benefits, rather than the amount of money. Like, I don't want to be giving money to gated communities in El Salvador. I, I would rather that number be lower. I would like it to be zero. I think if people understood... Where, where aid money was going, the whole budget would be stopped um, tomorrow. Because the right, the, the interesting thing about aid is that the right is very critical of it. And if you read the Daily Mail, there was they, they, they've launched campaigns to get the, the, the aid budget down. But their perception of aid and their analysis of aid is extremely thin. Um, and the, the major arguments that I've been making um, that should be made by the left are just non-existent. You can't hear them. In the, in, in the media at all, partly because the, the place that you would normally hear them would be The Guardian or you'd expect to hear them, but uh, the whole of its development website is funded by the Gates Foundation. So 
to go back to the gated communities in El Salvador, one of the interesting facets of this whole thing is that the system that is being erected around the world and has been erected, which is corporate rule, um, has created an extremely divided society here, but also around the world. Everywhere you go, there's huge levels of uh, inequality. So you now have a class of people in all these places that need to um, uh, fence themselves off from the rest of society, to fence themselves off from the results of this system. Uh, so the El, El Salvador uh, uh, is, a, is an extremely poor country, and we went there in our reporting, but it's got little oases of, of huge wealth, uh, and that's where the British money is going because they think that there needs to be places for uh, the rich to live because that's part of their development model. For example, in, in, another example was Myanmar and, and the five-star hotel which they were funding. We talked to the head of the IFC, which is the private sector lending arm of the World Bank, when we were in Myanmar, and we said, Can you at least justify why you're spending aid money um, on, on a five-star hotel? And he said, well, look, they're opening up to the rest of the world. They need, uh, when a businessman goes to Myanmar, he needs a place he's gonna feel comfortable to stay so he can make go and negotiate with people uh, f to do business deals, and that's their argument. They don't like, and it makes sense, I guess, on some level. But when you look at a society like Myanmar, the problems it has, the scale of the problems, the last thing that you you would you would locate as a thing that they needed was a five star hotel for rich people to go and invest. In fact, what they need is a development model that does not rely solely on the vagaries of uh, internet of foreign direct investment, which is what they're building. Um, that, I mean, for me, the, the most shocking part of this book and the, the two-year reporting project that went into it was the aid section because everywhere I went, I, um, I saw that aid was not benefiting largely. There were small parts of it that were benefiting the poor, uh, but largely was benefiting the richest people in the world, the corporations uh, and the, the local elite. And secondly, the second part of that is that this is not a mistake. Originally, when I first started reporting, I was like, okay, well, they're, they're, they've obviously not thought this out. But when you start looking at the history of it and you look at how aid developed out of the fall of uh, formal colonialism, you realize this, was all the this has been designed from the start. This is the plan. This is the plan. The IFC, for example, the, the, the institution which I looked at most and which I've described, the arm of the World Bank, which was created in 1956. We went to the World Bank archives in Washington, D.C., and we looked at what the discussions were about why they were creating the IFC. And it was explicitly talked about as an arm of the, uh, a tool in the Cold War. They wanted to expand capitalism uh, in places which, were, which could fall to communism. So the best way to do that is to make the private sector as big as possible, right? So they'd say, we need this corporation to go in. Um, and it, but, but now the IFC is an investment bank. People on the ins we talked to people on the inside uh, who anonymously... And they said the IFC effectively functions as, as an investment bank and, it, and, it, and it's a money earner for the World Bank group as well. So it's been completely perverted from any kind of uh, development goal. A few, a few points. So I think most people that w when they hear the words international development, they think kids getting books at school, like I said, clean drinking, water, maybe an infrastructure project, right? A road. Um, but they wouldn't hear in their mind, <clears throat> yeah, five-star hotel where businessmen can have a cup, you know, a cup of coffee and make a business of it. It's fucking ridiculous, frankly. But like you say, A, it goes, I think, hand in hand with an idea that the more privatization, the more inequality, the better. And I think uh, as an appendage to that, like the, the continuation with, with colonialism, 
And I suppose there's an outgrowth of that as well. I mean, you said that a lot of this is based upon anti-communism and opposition to communism during the Cold War at the end of the 1950s. So you've got Mossadegh, Arbenz in Guatemala, um, and Nasser in Egypt. And these guys weren't particularly left-wing, but I mean, actually, Arbenz is basically just a social democrat. But the point is, social democracy outside of the West wasn't allowed. Um, but it wasn't just communism. I mean, it, it, there was very much a concern that global South countries would have nationalism. Right, this force, which is apparently so normal in the West, you're allowed to be a nationalist in the UK or France, or the US, but the minute you have a nationalism from a third world country, it was just we cannot have that. So I think for an audience as well, just because they might say, "Well, good anti-communism." Well, no, this is fundamentally about creating obstacles to nationalism and to the idea of you know popular sovereignty. And again, it's something actually I think the left's been very weak on. You know, the left says, "Oh, all nationalism is bad." Well, actually, nationalism has created an incredible countervailing force against oppression, against imperialism for the majority of the world over the last 100 years. So maybe don't phrase things like that. You mentioned the, the World Bank. I mean, wow. Some of the stories about the World Bank were just, and this idea of it being an investment fund. Can you touch upon one project in particular in Tanzania? Yeah, this was a... They, <laughs> the, uh, the other bizarre part of this whole system is you would expect a diamond mine um, to if it was owned by a major company like the beers they would ha they would not need like non-commercial loans at, at favorable rates from a development institution to to expand you would have thought that, that they were integrated enough into the world of finance that they could get the the loans that they wanted but essentially in this in this case um this diamond mine um which is now owned by petro diamonds which is listed in london um said that they hadn't made a profit in like 10 or 15 years, which again, I was dubious of because it's very nice to say that if you're in Tanzania, whose HMRC is probably like five or six guys in a room and you've got like all these uh, powerful accountants that can do interesting uh, accounting to make sure you don't get a profit that you have to pay a tax on. I'm not saying that's what they did, but um, that, that 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 is a massive power imbalance that you see around the world where you have the corporate accountants and... and it's and not HMRC in this country, right? I mean, that's I don't think anybody would dispute that. Tanzania's ability to collect tax is probably yeah, quite limited. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they said they hadn't... So they, 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 they took money from the World Bank and the IFC to develop this uh, diamond mine. Um, and I went along there. Uh, and again, it's like so much of this new geograph corporate geography uh, around the world where you go to... A place like Tanzania, which is not one of the poorest African countries, but is pretty poor when you go there. And then you arrive at, so, so you're, you're seeing all this sort of uh, poverty around. And then you arrive at this, it's, it's a campus, the, the, this, this diamond mine. It's, it's not just a mine, it's got like a hospital and a school. And you go through the metal gates and, and it's just like perfectly tarmac roads, uh, a hospital that works, a school, um, uh, people, uh, like looking happy and and that's what and and so you go there then you get taken by a PR person around and they're telling you all the wonderful things uh and and but but the funny thing is that when I interviewed the finance uh person at that mine he said to me we didn't need the IFCs and non-commercial loans we could have easily done it without but we liked having the imprimatur of the World Bank on our company it was it was good for our nice. respectability it was yeah. good for mm -hmm. our how we legitimacy, looked at, legitimacy. Right? And how could we be exploiting people the World Bank's helping exactly. us exactly um and 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 then so add that to the fact it's a diamond mine so how does that benefit development uh, it's a private diamond diamond mine that hasn't paid tax in over a decade um and the, the World Bank's argument is well it creates jobs and it develops 
uh, uh, the, the hamlets around the campus. Um, so part of the whole propaganda tour I was taken on was I was taken to a local school which had been built by company. It was like 50 kids packed into a little like brick uh, brick school, tiny brick school. Uh, and then I interviewed some some of the teachers and they, they actually were quite um, uh, outspoken to me. They said, well... They they might have built us this, but they didn't. Uh, like, where's the where's the money for the central government? They were, they were they were aware of what I'm talking about, which is that they they avoid all this paying any tax to the central government and then act like they're the saviors of the local community by building these pretty threadbare schools. Um, and that is kind of what we saw all around the world. That that the arguments are so thin for why they're investing in these these uh, these high end uh, capitalist uh exploration uh endeavors like a diamond mine or a five-star hotel it's all about creating jobs for the local local community why can't you create a job for the local community by by building something that's socially useful for for, for poor people but also if it's publicly owned or at least if the Public, state, yeah but if that, the, even if the state just has a 30 percent share right? exactly. let's have a compromise here like there's still the jobs yeah but this is a very important point that you bring up about the ifc because the ifc doesn't just invest in private corporations uh to to go into new markets they have an advisory arm which is advising governments to privatize everything. Yeah. And there's a famous case where they got um, the, the 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 main hospital in Lesotho to private. Oxfam did a whole report about this. The IFC uh, uh, helped uh, Lesotho privatize their hospital, uh, their main hospital, and then it started eating up like huge amounts of their uh, health budget uh, per year, uh, ex uh, extraordinary uh, sums. And that is kind of replicated around the world. They're advising governments to privatise certain things and then investing in companies that might benefit from those privatisations. So there's a conflict of yeah, interest there. Clearly, well. right? I mean, yeah. you know, that's clear as day. As well with the World Bank, this was another one, Matt. It just, my jaw dropped, right? And I'm, I'm quite, I'm sure people who are familiar with Navarro know I'm quite sceptical of many things. I'm a bit of a cynic even. But this idea that the World Bank invests to an extraordinary extent in companies registered in tax domains where they'll pay less tax. So, for instance, companies which are operating in Africa, but they'll be domiciled in somewhere like the Mauritius because it's really a, it's a tax haven. Now, I'm not saying they're evading tax, but it's legal tax avoidance. And I find it incredible that the World Bank's development model would accept the possibility. Of, we're helping a country develop by investing in a business which is in tax haven. Can you explain that to me, please? Well, we went to Mauritius, actually, because Mauritius... Um it's kind of an, an emblematic uh, example of this whole system as well, because when it was when it achieved independence, uh, it was written off as kind of a basket case. There was no, it had no real resources or um, uh, obvious way to develop out of, out, of, out of the poverty that it was in. And then it 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 was the World Bank promoted this whole idea of it becoming a tax haven. And now, if you got when you go there, there's like these. It's, there's a huge financial district, insurance companies, all these uh, international companies there. And we were looking at a company called Malawi Mangoes, which is registered in Mauritius. And we tried to get their accounts. You can't get their accounts in Mauritius because another part of this is that tax havens are secrecy jurisdictions. So we couldn't get any, even when we were in Mauritius, we went to their company's house and we couldn't get any details. But the IFC had invested in Malawi Mangoes. Which is Meant to be dealing with Malawi, which is a country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but they're registered in Mauritius, um, and yeah, I mean, the, the the World Bank. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that the World Bank don't care because it's part of the whole model that they're promoting. 
Like they they are promoting a corporate agenda and a corp they, they are one their whole model is rests on the fact that the only way the world can develop is by attracting foreign direct investment and attracting foreign corporations to go and invest there. Now, if you if that's if you believe that's the whole of the the riddle of development, then tax havens are, are a benefit because they they help corporations and anything that's good for corporations is good for development because there's no other way to develop. And I think that's what they think. I mean, they won't say that publicly. They would say, but there's no they have no regulations in place to stop investments in in um in companies that are registered in in tax havens, for example, Malawi Wangos, and there's plenty of others. So. I mean, I, I but that's correct. I mean, that is really low-hanging fruit, Matt. Like, it's one thing having investments which don't find a, a big social return, but the idea that oh, we're going to help Malawi by helping a company registered in the Mauritius, which doesn't even pay tax to to Malawi, it's mad. Like, the United States government is very good on businesses which make profit in its jurisdiction, which you know are basically tax dodgers, much better than we are in this country, by the way. And yeah, or even US nationals who live abroad, they find them and they get them to pay the money. But then the whole model of development, which is really being pushed by the United States overseas, I mean, oh, heaven forbid the US is being hypocritical, of course, but this just strikes me as like utterly brazen. Like, how can you have a developmental model which doesn't even involve businesses which you want to grow? If you believe in the private sector, clearly those businesses should be paying tax to pay for state services, Clear, clearly, but that doesn't even seem to be included there. No. I mean, I can't. I can't tell you. I mean, I agree with you. It's shocking. But then it's shocking that uh, an aid organisation whose stated goal is to alleviate global poverty is investing in a diamond mine in in Tanzania. It makes no sense. Or a five star hotel, or a, a shopping centre in El Salvador, or a gated community in El Salvador. There's it, it, every country in the world. There's these bizarre projects, and it's it goes to the fact that it's an extremist point of view, uh, an extreme economic ideology that has proven to be a disaster pretty much everywhere it's been practiced because you talk about nationalism, right? And I agree with you that it's often, especially in the developing world, those kind of economic nationalism is a good thing. Yeah. Resource nationalism, I, I used to 100%. work- 100%. When I worked at the Financial Times, one of the funniest things about it was whenever any um, government talked about using the resources for themselves, nationalizing a mining company or, or taxing those corporations higher, they were, they were, they were um, it was called resource nationalism, and that was a pejorative. The idea it, it was seen as, oh no, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be in control of your your resources, and that's how it goes around the world. In 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 uh, in Latin America in the fifties and sixties, import substitution model was really successful. Massive uh, keeping out products so you could um, uh, develop your uh, infant industries without flooding your own uh, market with 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 foreign goods. It's good. It's a good thing, and it helped develop uh, domestic uh, economies. That was completely destroyed in the seventies and eighties by these by these aid institutions or the Bretton Woods institutions, which we're told were are about development. And that's what I think that a realization people need to understand is that the word development is uh, is is a very different thing if you work within these institutions. It's not helping the poor develop. It's greasing the entry of corporate corporations into the developing world. That is the major role because they believe that's the only way that corporate the, the developing world can develop. And it's not a coincidence that they believe that. They believe that because essentially they're promoting an ideology which benefits the richest people in the world. That is, they were set up by the US and the UK, essentially. Mm. I think mo most people say they're skeptics of sort of trade and aid. They're skeptics, but they'll say, look, it's a mixed bag. But from what you're describing, you know, the existing trade and aid model which we have with the World Bank, with the IMF, 
with aid agencies, with you know various NGOs, it looks like, to me, a machine to generate inequality. It's like an algorithm to create as much inequality as possible. And you compare that to what's going on, for instance, in China, state-led, hundreds of millions of people brought out of poverty. Now, I'm not saying China's perfect, but you've got two quite different paradigms there. And it's quite, it's quite obvious which one works, yeah, right? I, yeah. I mean, another example of this is I always think what well, must be amazing working in the World Bank and being an economist and trying to develop all these theories about how you get out of poverty and then looking at Evan Morales' Bolivia. Uh, that started in 2000, where he was elected in 2005. Um, their model was to nationalize. They nationalized huge amounts of companies straight away within 100 days. Uh, they were, le- were later praised by the World Bank and IMF for their economic uh, success. Growth rates high, uh, massive poverty reduction program. That was all done with policies which were the opposite of what the IMF and the World Bank tell you to do. And it's like you say, it's very, very bizarre that people don't look at that and think, well, maybe we're promoting the wrong policies. They do the opposite. They say, well, push it harder when, when countries come out of the cold. So for example, in Myanmar, was, we went at an interesting time because it was at a time when they thought democracy was on, it, it was on a path towards democracy. And obviously Myanmar has been out in the cold for decades. And we were talking to all these institutions about what policies they were institute, instituting. And it was all the same ones I've been talking about. It was Sign bilateral investment treaties enshrining ISDS. Um, sign up for IFC loans to get foreign corporations to enter. Open an SEZ, special economic zone, which we went to. There was one called Tilawa, which was being set up actually by the Japanese aid agency. Because the other point is we should come on special economic zones, but they are often funded by aid organizations as well. Building a special economic zone is, is our aid money has been used for. Um, all these things, the menu of policies that the World Bank, IMF, uh, regional development banks push on countries when they come in, being reintegrated, are all the ones that show, as you say, very, very little success in developing countries. Um, and the reason, I mean, I don't think it's a conspiracy to say the reason that they hold to these quite extremist ideas that don't benefit the, 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 the majority is because they're never more meant to. They're meant to benefit corporate power. They're meant to benefit the 1%. That was why they were set up in the first place. The person that talks about this quite eloquently is Joseph Stiglitz, who was a a chief economist at the World Bank for for a long time. And he wrote that famous book, Globalization and Its Discontents. Now, he's kind of still thinks that there was an idealistic thread and it went wrong. But if you read about the people that are in control now, he calls them extremists. They're, they were people that during his time, they uh, he saw that they were taking over the uh, the levers of power within the World Bank particularly and um, pushing an extremist agenda, which which is still in place and should be, should be got rid of. Because the other thing is pe- development sounds boring when you say it to people, but what it describes is how the majority of humanity run their economies. It's extremely important uh, what, I, what, what theories are being promoted because it has a massive impact on billions of people. So, But it's like you said before, the left, I, I, I don't think engage as much as they should on these issues because these were all issues that exercised the left in the 90s, right, at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and particularly you had like Seattle, every WTO meeting was, was, was there were huge protests. And then that all stopped with uh, September 11th and the drive to war in Iraq. The left's attention moved away from what was called the anti-globalization movement, which was a misnomer, but it was a big movement globally towards the anti-war movement um, and the war on terror. And I think that maybe that's 
dissipating a bit, but I think that the, the left needs to re-engage with these issues because for me, re- having written this book and having looked into this stuff, I think that there's no way you can understand politics today here globally without seeing it through the lens of corporate power and how they've taken over uh, and cannibalized the state that created them. Let's talk about Europe quickly because there's a bank that's equivalent to the World Bank. It's called the European Bank of um, Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD, and it's funded by European Union member states, i.e. their taxpayers. So explain to me how Europe's taxpayers, including British taxpayers, helped fund the expansion of Lidl. Yeah, well, so the EBRD is another interesting institution um, which was set up at an interesting time. It was set up in uh, April 1991 at the end of the Cold War. And what it was about was essentially the same as the World Bank. It was about integrate uh, the World Bank after the Second World War. It was about integrating Eastern Europe, the former Soviet bloc, into the capitalist system. And it was on the principle of the same as the IFC. We will invest in the private sector, which might otherwise not want to go to these new markets. Now, like like with the IFC, it's just become a complete um, racket and joke. Like they've spent a billion dollars um, uh, giving little money to expand in, into Eastern Europe. And this is a huge, massively rich corporation. It does not need non-commercial loans to expand into different places. Uh, anywhere. We say we, but again, just to be clear, this is taxpayer money coming yeah. from the, the UK or France or Italy, and it's been yeah. given to little, this huge multinational yeah. to expand and yeah. to make more money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And little has huge... The other part of this is that the comp- a lot of the companies that have invested in have huge um, controversies about how they treat workers. Little, particularly in Eastern Europe, we went to Poland and, uh, and a couple of other places and talked to workers who work for little and they said that uh, their conditions were bad and uh, um, that the company was, was was actually uniquely bad in in comparison uh, to other ones. Uh, so so it's not just it's aid money that they don't need, taxpayer money that to expand that they don't need, and the company itself is not it, it is is particularly and uniquely um, uh, bad treatment of its workers. So it make it makes no sense. But as I said, sorry to go back to the same point, but it does doesn't make sense if your understanding of aid and development is the one that is it, it, that comes straight from the world bank well, if you, if you if you if you believe that they they're telling the truth and that their that their aim is to alleviate global pol- poverty yeah it doesn't make sense if you start looking into it and understanding that that's a lie and it's about greasing the entry of corporations into new markets and it's also about enshrining capitalism as a system in all over the world, not just in Eastern Europe, but in, in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, then it makes sense. But not even not even capitalism, right? Because as you talk about in the book, Lidl's growth meant that smaller retailers, you know, grocers, et cetera, closed down outdoor food markets, which by the way, were selling produce at a cheaper rate. So it's not like they were breaking up food cooperatives or something. Like there was a there was a very different kind, there was a particular kind of capitalism, I should say, which was being imposed on Central and Eastern Europe. And it it seems to me like basically the EBRD and the European Union, the bigwigs of Brussels and Strasbourg, and yes, I sound like Farage, sorry, Some, sometimes people disagree with the right about something. They basically wanted a European Walmart. So it was like a status symbol. We have a single market, so we have to have like across the whole continent, because we believe in this federal project of like a European Walmart. Who's going to pay for it? European taxpayer. Meanwhile, you've got you know little execs making big big bucks, and 
it's insane, Matt, the idea that expansion is being funded by the taxpayer. Final question, because you spoke about it earlier, and obviously you're very passionate about it, special economic zones. Where do these fit? We associate them with China, but clearly they're quite integrated with trade and aid. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's all part of the same um, menu of policy prescriptions, which is offered by the World Bank. Um, yeah, th this was my the most interesting uh, part of the book for, for me personally to report because I just think it, it's kind of a parable for the whole story. Because what special, I'll just explain what a special economic zone is. A special economic zone is a territory which is chiseled off from the national territory in terms of um, tax regime, import, export tariffs, customs, all that, all, all the stuff that a national government imposes on corporations when they when they work in a country is off. You don't, that those laws don't apply. Um, so uh, we call them in a book corporate utopias, and that's essentially what they were, what they are. Um, they were created, actually, funnily enough, and this was a, a really interesting part of the story, which was that the first special economic zone ever, or what so, so called, it was in Shannon in Ireland, in West Ireland. And we went to Shannon to report it. And this was a, a sort of really um, uh, uh, mercurial entrepreneur called Brendan O'Regan. He's quite famous in, in Western Ireland. He, he had this idea that Shannon needed to uh, have a new development model after, because it it's a famous airport and it was an airport that refueled um, uh, airplanes that were transatlantic flights. Um, and when, when technology developed enough that an airplane could go further, they, did, it, they were basically going to be... Uh, uh, out of out of any kind of work, so he said. Well, what we should do is we should create this little zone where corporations could do what they want. Uh, they don't have to pay the tax to the government. They don't have to do all the import uh, export duties and customs. And they did it, and that was in 1956, and it has absolutely exploded. Um, and fame, as you mentioned, China, it, China's it's basically the model which has propelled China to economic superpower status, and they're quite aware of that. The funny thing was when we were in Shannon. The head of the Shannon Chamber of Commerce said that Chinese dignitaries often come, um, uh, and and Xi Jinping was there uh, not that long wow. ago. Yeah, uh, and they said that, I think it was Xi. Uh, they said that it was either him or, or a previous uh, leader um, made a request when they came that they wanted to stop in the taxi to the hotel when he came to Shannon on what they, on Tully, Tully Glass Hill, which is this hill overlooking this I've, I've been there it's it's look it's just a nondescript hill overlooking a gray industrial estate in western ireland and the, the 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 second most powerful man in the world requested that the taxi could stop on the way to the hotel so he could have a moment of pause for reflection to look at the shannon uh, economic zone especially economic zone, because the chinese are like this is where it all began but it's become a, a, a it's become a as i said it's gone all over the world and it's come to britain uh, it, two years ago, Rishi Sunak, oh, sorry, it wasn't Rishi Sunak then, but the UK government announced that we're going to have 13 free ports here, um, whereby, the, and, and it's the same special economic zone idea, you can, corporations won't have to abide by national laws. And I think that what you've seen with the development of the special economic zone is more and more pressure to create a, 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 a global economy and national laws in corporate interest because often policies which are trialed in special economic zones are then then become national policies. And in fact, we use the term in the book, special economic world. We're living in a special economic world now. The race to the bottom means that every that the most successful countries for attracting foreign direct investments are the ones that have bad uh, labor laws, bad environmental law, uh, regulations, all the, all the stuff that we think of as 
the basis of a civilized society, that's what you can't have if you want to attract foreign direct investment. And as I've said, the World Bank, IMF, that's the only way you can develop is to attract foreign direct investment. So special economic zones are kind of, for me, the emblematic um, uh, case. And I'll just finish with this, that I went to Cambodia. Uh, I think this was probably the most profound reporting trip that I made during the book. I went to Cambodia to report on from two special economic zones, in, um, uh, one in Phnom Penh and one in a place called Bavet, which is on the border with Vietnam. Uh, and actually, they're, they're often built on the borders because of trade. And Bavet actually just because everyone's talking about Henry Kissinger at the moment, Babette was one of the places that he he destroyed in Operation Menu during uh, the Vietnam War. But I actually, uh, they wouldn't let me in. And then I snuck it, the, the, the one in Babette, they wouldn't let me in. And then they, I snuck in and started interviewing workers within the special economic zone. And it was in, an incredible experience because they basically said, like, we can't organize here. So part of the special economic zone is about warehousing workers um and they they said if we try and organize they will sack us or even we might be the victims of physical violence um and what what i was told was that often in places in special economic zones in cambodia but happens around the world is that workers will just erupt in violent outbreaks because they're not allowed to organize in a in a legitimate way there's just constant uh, violence they'll, they'll start smashing up the machines they'll beat up their manager whatever it is and that happened all over uh, uh cambodia in the world and it really did st uh, show me the power of uh, of unions and how important they are to a civilized society because most of the unions in cambodia even the ones that did operate were called yellow unions they were co-opted by the the corporations or the state and i did interview some independent unions and they were just working with an extremely um, uh, difficult conditions in terms of repression from the state, repression from the corporations, and but but they were they were winning. Like the the minimum wage when I was there was being raised, and it was it was a kind of an amazing experience in the in in the context of all this corporate power in the context of working within special economic zones. They were winning. Um, so that was quite a, a hopeful way to end it. And and I think that we haven't touched on this, but I want to just say it before we end, that a major part of this is not just um, corporations exerting their power. A major part of this is states exerting power on behalf of corporations. Because everywhere I went in the world, whether it be peasants in Tanzania, um, uh, Poor people in Colombia being victimized by paramilitaries, wherever it was, I'd say, okay, well, look, you're being oppressed by this corporation because you're standing up for your rights. What's your government doing for you? And then they will say, oh, don't be silly. The government works for the corporation. Every single one. That's how it works. The government is not working for the people. The government is working to help the corporation enforce their rule in that person's country. And that's a very important conceptual uh understand it to come to because it's the opposite of what we're told which is that the state and the corporation are two adversarial power centers and they 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 duke it out but they don't the corporation has has a supranational system which we talked about which operates above national governments but even the national governments themselves have become completely infested with corporate power and in some ways it's very explicit for example in the UK the department of trade and industry has a whole taxpayer funded body called the Defence and Security Organisation, which its role is to promote 
arms companies around the world, private arms companies. We pay for that, mainly BAE Systems. But that, that's a very explicit bit. It operates on a much more implicit level across the board as well. So I think that the left going forwards needs to understand that if we don't see the level of power that corporations have accrued um, and understand how they're exerting it, then we're, we're going to be fighting the, the wrong battles because the, the corporations want us to be talking, want a certain discourse on the left. I think the discourse we have now, the culture war, is a function of the corporate takeover of uh, our, our, our whole discourse in that it, it's really conducive to corporations just working in the background and no one really talking about them and no one really operating uh, any kind of pressures on them to, to stop the cannibalization of all our resources. Corporate, I say corporate friendly identity politics has taken off and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's very, um, conducive to certain interests that we constantly talk about culture war issues um, and that's the left and the right and we ignore bigger structural economic issues at our peril. Matt Kennard, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Downstream. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month head to navara.media forward slash support.